From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, actor Joel Edgerton. He stars in Paul Schrader's new movie, Master Gardener, as a horticulturalist with a secret past as a white nationalist. He played Anakin Skywalker's half-brother Owen Lars in Star Wars prequels and the Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi. Also, humorist Samantha Irby talks about her new book of essays, Quietly Hostile. Irby has made a living writing about the stuff we all experience but rarely say out loud. From our daily biological functions to the New Year's resolutions we delude ourselves into thinking we'll keep. And TV critic David Biancooli reviews the new Netflix documentary series, Working. It's a modern take on Studs Terkel's influential 1970s book of interviews, also called Working. The new series is hosted by Barack Obama. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, actor Joel Edgerton, is Australian, but he's learned a lot about American racism through the roles he's played. In the 2016 film Loving, he played Richard Loving, a white man who married a black woman, leading to the historic Supreme Court decision, Loving versus Virginia, the case that overturned state laws that made interracial marriage illegal. In the streaming series The Underground Railroad, he played a determined slave catcher, and now he stars in Paul Schrader's new film, the third in Schrader's trilogy of films, each about a lonely man who has emotionally shut down to escape the past. Each of these films has echoes of Schrader's screenplay for Taxi Driver and his character Travis Bickle, God's Lonely Man. As in Taxi Driver, the lead characters in each of these films is known by their profession, a minister in First Reformed, a card counter in The Card Counter, a horticulturalist in the new film Master Gardener. The main characters, like Travis and Taxi Driver, keep a journal. In Master Gardener, Edgerton is the head gardener in a historic public garden that has existed for four generations on a southern family estate. His journal is filled with his thoughts about gardening and how it's a metaphor for much of life. Here's a journal entry from early in the film. The Nandina is a species of flowering plant native to Eastern Asia. The smell at certain times of the year is minty with a hint of almond. It gives you a real buzz. Like the buzz you get just before pulling the trigger. Gardening is the most accessible of the arts. It's already there. Every seed is a plant waiting to be unlocked. It was commonly thought that 150 years was a lifetime of a seed. In the 1950s, a Japanese botanist discovered viable lotus seeds in an ice age lake bed. A substantial portion were germinated. It is now believed that the lifetime of a seed is between 850 and 1250 years. Given the right conditions, seeds can last indefinitely. I wear mine on my skin every day. As the gardener writes this in his journal, we see him shirtless, revealing that his back and chest are covered with swastikas and other white nationalist symbols. 
It's shocking, and we don't know what to make of it, but we slowly learn as the movie progresses. Homophobia was at the center of Edgerton's film Boy Erased, which he wrote and directed. He co-starred as the director of a religious-based gay conversion therapy center with the mission of converting gay teens into heterosexuals. The film was adapted from a memoir by a gay man who'd been sent to such a center when he was in his teens. Edgerton also wrote and directed the psychological thriller The Gift. Among his many other roles are Tom Buchanan in The Great Gatsby and Owen Lars, Anakin Skywalker's half-brother, in two of the Star Wars prequels and in the Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi. He started making movies with his brother Nash when they were still in their pre-teens, home movies. Nash became a stuntman and did the stunts for Ewan McGregor in his role as Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Joel Edgerton, welcome to Fresh Air. You are so great in this new movie. Um, You know, the movie starts in the garden, and I thought, what? Has Paul Schrader gone pastoral? What's going on here? (laughs) And of course, as I I heard the bullet in that clip that we just played, I thought, "Uh uh-huh, here we go. (laughs) What was your reaction reading the beginning? Uh, I remember as I started reading and reading about the garden, reading about his approach to gardening, the character's approach to gardening, thinking, all right, when is the violence going to seep into this place? Um, And when we were in Venice talking about this film, um, it's really interesting, you know, to hear Paul talk about his evolution through these um, stories which, which bear resemblance to each other, but they are starting to shift into a softer... Uh, more optimistic and hopeful place, in particular, the uh, the master gardener. Which you know, without spoiling anything, it will be an interesting thing for anybody who's a fan of Paul to see how that this not only the setting, but but the the kind of culmination of the story where it's headed is somewhere more hopeful than other things that he's written. You know, obviously, I recognize the swastika tattoos on your back. But what are the other symbols and writings tattooed on your body? Well, a lot of them are, you know, uh, iconic um, uh, symbols of white supremacist or white nationalist kind of organizations, the birth uh, birth date or birth year of Hitler, um, symbols of the SS and various other symbols and numbers that are significant and um, mean something to people in these sort of uh, white nationalist enclaves. Did you have to get them retattooed every day? You know, Paul is very restrained in the way that he makes films and expounds uh, story. And I remember wearing them for the first time and feeling the kind of strange power that they had. And Paul told me that he'd artfully sort of written the film so that we only ever see them on a specific three occasions. Um, so it was really a matter of only having to, to wear them on three different days. And it specifically made my character's uh, costume so uh, much a kind of veil and a cover for, for all those tattoos so that when I'm operating within the garden, it's not... There's no hint of any of those markings until, you know, it's important that I take the, that shirt off. 
What, what did Paul Schrader tell you about the kind of performance that he wanted? Because your character is both very charismatic, but during most of the film, he's emotionally shut down. You know, he's, he's like created this rigid structure for himself. Uh, there's rules of gardening. There's rules in his life. He allows himself one cigarette a day. Um, everything's very regimented. He has to have control over the garden and everything else. But at the same time, you radiate this charisma. I think that must be really hard to do. So what did Schrader tell you about what he wanted from, from the character and from your portrayal? Well, first of all, Paul is somebody rare that I've encountered that knows exactly what he wants and is very uh, straightforward in communicating the things that he wants. Um, and as an actor, his uh, interest in sort of letting me know from our earliest conversations what he imagined and expected of the character uh, was was very clear. And I remember Paul using the analogy of the ocean and the turbulence of different stages of turbulence of water and that he saw his stories uh, populated by characters that were the waves and the movement of water and the, and, and the chaos and, and uh, which I equated and he equates to, you know, emotional expression. Um, and that the central character of his stories was generally a kind of a pillar or a rock or a lighthouse amongst all that turbulence. Um, and essentially what he was telling me was do nothing. You know, let the story kind of let the words come through um, that the less of an actor that I was, the better for the film that he wanted to create. And I found that a really interesting challenge because I am an actor and, <laughs> you know, there, there's maybe a fear of doing nothing a fear of not being good enough unless you're doing something. And by something, I mean, you know, uh, bringing your bag of tricks of performance and emotion and, and being loud and soft and emotional and angry and upset and all those things. And even bits of business like putting your hands in your pockets or fidgeting, you know, fidgeting with yeah. something. Like your character can't do any of that. He's just still. Yeah, creating a character... Uh, is often the the gravitational pull, but this is a different kind of character, and the confidence to be still, and the confidence to be quiet, and the confidence to to just let the thoughts come through. Um, and I found that a really sort of difficult, but you know, really alluring challenge. And Paul actually cited loving as something that he uh, admired in terms of its. Um, it's restraint. So at least I had a guide in some of my previous films that, that I understood what, what he was sort of gravitating towards. Your, your character in Loving is so kind of unexpressive. Um, he barely talks and he doesn't even go to the Supreme Court case that bears his name, Loving versus Virginia. Um, do you understand being as emotionally shut down as your character is? Is there anything that you can draw from from your own experience that understands what it is to push emotion down like that? I think I really understand it when it comes to aggression. Um, 
you know, I have a really interesting relationship with, with uh, uncomfortability and tension. I, I try and avoid it at all costs. I feel uh, deep anxiety when I see things of conflict. And I've often wondered if that's part of the reason that I that drew me to become an actor is that I go to work and I get paid. Um, What's well, less about being paid is more like I get to go to an environment where I can be all of the things that I'm not comfortable doing in my real life um, and feel comfortable within conflict. But yeah, if you if you catch me in the midst of conflict in my life, I am like a snail, uh, you know, and I know what my threshold is. I know what my male pride and ego draws me into and I can feel when my blood goes up, like I'm not... At, you know, it's not like I don't feel the effects of it, but I would rather avoid it. And so here I am living a life where I have a job that requires me to participate in all this stuff. Do you understand why you're anxious about conflict? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I'm a people pleaser. Uh, I think I take that lead from my mother, whereas my father is very happy to rock the boat um, to really be uh, assertive. Um, I think, you know, my mother and I just want to make sure everybody's okay. And I think sometimes that is to your own detriment because it requires you to bear the load um, and repress certain other things. I mean, I'm okay. I'm not like a combustible bottle ready to smash and burst open and create some massive flash of violence. But you know, I, I feel that compression and and repression at times. Um, but I'm pretty good with my other emotions, I think. My guest is Joel Edgerton. He stars on Paul Schrader's new film, Master Gardener. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. And David Bianculi will review the new Netflix documentary series, Working, hosted by Barack Obama. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to my interview with Joel Edgerton. He stars in Paul Schrader's new movie, Master Gardener. Um, I want to play a clip from the first really famous film that you were in, and that was Star Wars Revenge of the Clones. Oh, okay. Okay, so I want to play a clip, and you are Anakin Skywalker's half-brother in this. This is where you first meet. Owen Lars, this is my girlfriend, Baru. Hello, I'm Padme. I guess I'm your stepbrother. I had a feeling you might show up someday. Okay, I think that's all your lines in the film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, right? That's, that's, that's your part. Oh, I should mention, what you, there's also a scene indoors. That's outdoors. There's also a scene indoors when you both go indoors, and we see the back of your head mostly. And that's it, right? Yeah, but that was my crowbar into Hollywood, I'll call that. And how did you use that crowbar? Well, you know, I had a curiosity about going to America and that George Lucas was probably going to take about 18 months to put the movie together. And I knew that I could go to Hollywood and say that I was in the new Star Wars film and nobody would know that it was only like three minutes <laughs> And uh, 
and that it would allow me to, you know, meet with agents and do things, um, get the opportunities or the opportunities to audition for the kinds of things that I thought I was capable of, uh, which I did. And, you know, at the time, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess it was two, yeah, 2000, you know, I went to LA and started doing meetings and trying to get people to take me seriously. And so Star Wars really sort of opened that door for me. And what happened <laughs> what happened after anyone saw how small your part was? Uh, no one no one called me and said, Hey, you conned me <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> And even to this day, for all of the work that I've done, uh, you know, when I go to a festival and sign photographs for fans if they're there uh, it's still half of them are, are photographs from me in Star Wars, whether it be the Disney Plus series recently, but more so the old Star Wars films. Um, and ironically, I heard someone say this is a, sec- a secondhand story that that uh, Liam Neeson uh, quipped at some point about signing all of his Qui Gong uh, uh, photographs from Star Wars. He's like, I'm shit. <laughs> He's like thinking about all the other work he's done. He's like, I was Schindler for sake, you know. Um, and it's amazing. The the legion of Star Wars fans are there and they always be there. And and as much as my few lines in uh, A New Hope, I mean in, in the second installment of Star Wars, weren't Hamlet or they weren't Henry V, they um, are very much part of my timeline that I'm gra- I have gratitude for. What did Star Wars mean to you growing up? How old were you when you saw your first Star Wars film, and which one was it? I, Star Wars was huge to me. I was a collector of the the little toys. Um, I remember one of my the first significant cinema experiences I had was my father waking my brother up uh, and putting us in the car and driving twenty minutes to the Roxy Cinema in Parramatta, which is where he worked, like where near where he worked. And we wore pajamas in our slippers to go watch Return of the Jedi. Um, and so Star Wars was very much part of my youth, as was Indiana Jones and E.T. and, you know, uh, Lucas and Spielberg kind of were very much part of my the seeds of my interest in, in cinema. And so, you know, being cast even in a small role in Star Wars, was like a dream that I never imagined could come true, coming true. We had access to the set. You got to see how things worked. Um, you yeah. got to work with George Lucas. Yeah, and I got to go Unless to Tunisia. it was Tunisia. a second unit director. <laughs> you didn't get yeah. to see him. And, you know, I had, I had long had a dream that I could potentially be an actor and see the world at the same time. And it was the first time that I had proof that that could come true because I got flown to Tunisia to do a couple of scenes and I remember getting out of this white land cruiser in the sweltering heat in the Sahara Desert in in Tatooine and I looked across and there are the water towers, the iconic water towers of Owen Lars's moisture farm and there was C-3PO standing there next to George Lucas and I felt like... I was moving in a, in a direction that I wanted to move. Hmm. 
Meanwhile, your brother Nash became a stuntman. Has your brother Nash ever served as a stuntman for you? In one of oh, absolutely. Oh, really? Uh, I There was a very funny moment in Australia where we're on the rooftop of a car park, uh, like a parking structure, and um, my character in this TV show called Dangerous had to um, get hit by a car, and it was, I think it was the moment my character gets killed. Um, and what happened that night is I got to sat in, sit in a chair with a blanket over myself with a cup of tea in my hand while my brother got hit by this car and broke the windshield. Um, and then I watched him get shards of glass sucked out of his hand with a vacuum cleaner, um, which is a great way of getting glass out of your hand, people, if it ever happens. Um, and prior to that night, I remember my mother said, Nash, you know, does Joel ever have to do anything dangerous in this TV, in this film or this show? And make sure you do it for him. And he's like, what? So I can be broken, but Joel can't. <laughs> she said, but it's your job. <laughs> Was he okay after going through the windshield? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He's fine. Night? And, you know, I'll tell you something else, because I just did nine episodes of a TV show. Um, and... These young stunt guys that were working, doing certain things for me, I realized that stunt people, hats off to them all over the world because they're the opposite of actors. You know, an actor will complain about something that's not even worth complaining about. A stunt guy could be almost broken in two and you'd be like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Stunt guys never complain. Uh, they always downplay injuries, uh, and 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 an actor will want to die off over a tiny splinter. Does that describe you? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I said earlier that I wasn't a tough guy. You did. <laughs> no, I, you know, I like to mix it up. I like to get involved with particularly fights uh, and horse riding and the kind of slightly safer aspects of stunt work, but. Stump people are all part of the close pit crew of actors that help us do our job better and make us look better. Joel Edgerton, it's been really great to talk with you. Thank you so much, and congratulations on Master Gardener. Thank you very much. What a pleasure. Joel Edgerton stars in Paul Schrader's new movie, Master Gardener. The new Netflix documentary series, Working, What We Do All Day, is a modern take on Studs Terkel's influential 1970s book of interviews, also called Working. This new TV version is hosted and narrated by Barack Obama. Our TV critic, David Biancouli, has seen all four episodes. Here's his review. Studs Terkel came out of Chicago as host of a long-running radio show. He interviewed people but became famous not by interviewing the rich and famous, but by talking and listening to ordinary folks. He wrote several best-selling books built around these conversations. One of them, which came out in 1974, was called Working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. Several years later, one of the readers of that book was a young man named Barack Obama. Sometime in college, I came across this book called Working by Studs Terkel, which was a chronicle of people from every walk of life 
and what it was like for them to work. There is no one way to begin. It's arbitrary. But you want to find, I suppose the word is quintessential truth, the essence of a truth. It was the first time anyone had really bothered to ask ordinary people directly what work was like for them. You feel you're fairly paid? Uh, I'm underpaid, but it beats not having a job at all. This is right about the time where I became interested in trying to figure out what kind of work I was going to do. This is from the opening introduction to working, but it might have served as the sales pitch at Netflix when executive producers Barack and Michelle Obama described their vision of a new documentary series. Their show would start with the issues confronted in Turkle's original book, then apply them to the present and the near future. Barack Obama's description in the opener grabs you, and from then on, this new working series never lets go. It was the 1970s. A new era of automation, global competition, and offshore manufacturing. These huge forces being felt in people's lives, with a new profits-obsessed corporate culture starting to take hold. It's all about this here. Fifty years later, we're in another moment of explosive change. Artificial intelligence remote work, spiraling inequality. It can be hard to make sense of where we are and where we're going. What if we pick up Stud's project for this new moment? What if we take three very different places and three very different industries? Home care, tech, and hospitality. What if people we might never ordinarily meet invited us into their lives and told us about their ambitions. What if we started at the bottom and worked our way up? The structure of this four-part series is flawless. The first episode visits three people working for different companies in as many cities. Then the remaining three episodes spend time with new people at those same companies, but higher up the employment ladder. At a home care business in Mississippi, we meet a health care worker just starting out, then her supervisor, then a Washington lobbyist for the company, then the CEO. Another CEO named Chris is the head of a self-driving vehicle design company in Pittsburgh. He confronts the undeniable reality that his self-driving trucks will put some people out of work. A bunch of people drive trucks, a bunch of people drive cars. What happens to them? My expectation is that if you are a truck driver and you would like to drive a truck until you retire, then you will be able to do that because we just have so much of a need for them. Um, but do I think you should probably go and start becoming a truck driver today? Maybe not. And while one visit to New York's Pierre Hotel ends up at the penthouse to visit that corporate owner, it begins in the guest rooms below, where a housekeeper named Elba describes her duties and some of the hotel guests she encounters. It's the documentary equivalent of Upstairs, Downstairs. Fitting single room every day. Sometimes if you are walking the hallway and you say good morning, people don't respond. But, uh, you know, I don't pay attention. They have money, they dress better than me, but, you know, they are no better than me, you know. Morning housekeeping. 
Sometimes these people tell their stories to the camera. But other times, director Caroline Sue brings Obama in to steer the conversation as Studs Terkel would have. You see no Secret Service, no TV crew, just the former president sharing a home-cooked meal with someone, or in this scene with Randy the single mom healthcare worker, grocery shopping with her at the local Piggly Wiggly. Obama is pushing the cart, with Randy's young daughter riding inside and making happy noises as they make their way down the cereal aisle. Do you have an idea in your mind about what work should be? Because some folks, like my mother-in-law and my grandmother, you know, their attitude was, I don't go to work to feel good or to get meaning or... I go to work, I go to, to, pay work to pay my bills. And I think younger folks... I think our attitude, you know how I said our attitude. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You're young as you feel, baby. <laughs> but especially with your generation, I think sometimes people expect that they should feel fulfilled in their work, that paying the bills isn't enough. I just want to be at home, on my porch, in my rocking chair. My refrigerator's full, my bills is paid, my child is killed. That's, that's the dream. You find That's peace. Way back in 1982, the PBS series American Playhouse presented a musical version of Working, with Turkle's interviews reshaped into lyrics and music by Stephen Schwartz, the composer of Godspell and Wicked. James Taylor sang one song playing a trucker. Patti LaBelle sang as a cleaning woman, and Rita Moreno sang about being a waitress. That was an enjoyable, inventive offshoot of Turkle's original concept. But Netflix's new Working is much more important. It offers a wide view of the workplace, exploring the concerns and aspirations of people on all levels of the economic scale. It's the best TV documentary about jobs and workers since Edward R. Murrow's Harvest of Shame on CBS. And that was more than 60 years ago. David Bianculi is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new Netflix documentary series, Working. Coming up, we hear from author and humorist Samantha Irby. Her new collection of essays is called Quietly Hostile. This is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Our new co-host, Tanya Mosley, has the next interview. It's a lot of fun. Here's Tanya to introduce it. Author Samantha Irby has made a living writing about the stuff we all think about but rarely say out loud from our daily biological functions to the New Year's resolutions we delude ourselves into thinking we'll keep, Irby delves into a new set of funny situations in her latest collection of essays called Quietly Hostile. In it, she takes us through her rise as a Hollywood TV show writer, the trials of getting turned away at swanky restaurants for not dressing hip enough, to almost getting a popular cable network to turn her first book into a TV show, the operative word being almost. As a self-described, high-functioning, anxious, and depressed person, Irby also gives us plenty to laugh about with her stories about domesticated life, moving from Chicago to Kalamazoo, Michigan, for love. Her new book is titled Quietly Hostile. She's written four others, including We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, Meaty, New Year, Same Trash, and Wow, No Thank You. Irby has also written for Lindy West's show Shrill and was a co-producer and writer on the Sex and the City reboot and Just Like That. Samantha Irby, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. I am nervous but excited. <laughs> 
Well, you know, fans of yours have watched you evolve through your writing, which started with your popular blog on MySpace. And this latest collection, Quietly Hostile, picks up where your last book left off. Can I have you read a passage from the chapter Body Horror? Gladly. In my mid to late 20s, I had one of those mid to late 20s epiphanies you have when you get your first twinge of sciatica or when some other age-related corporeal breakdown makes itself known to you. It triggered the crushing realization that I was not going to be young and lubricated for much longer and caused my brain to fry like a partnership for a drug-free America egg. Wait a minute. My lower back aches? I should probably start paying my bills on time. When I was a teenager, I thought 27 was the definitive, full-stop age I needed to have my shit together by, based, I'm pretty sure, solely on this article I'd read in a magazine that said you have until age 27 to shrink the fat cells in your body or be stuck with them forever. Imagine this world where it seemed plausible that I could be fat for the first 26 years of my life, then go on, I don't know, the Atkins diet, eat hot dogs for a year, and then magically become skinny for the rest of my life. Think of how hopeful you got to be to believe something like that. I wish I still had that optimism. (laughs) Um. I think all of us have that optimism in our 20s. Yeah. Yes. 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 I do wish I believed things more <laughs> or like believed in change more. I still am like optimistic, you know, hopeful, uh, cautiously hopeful. But I wish I, I really like believed I had the power to change anything. To change any and everything, including yes. your body. Yeah. The name of the book is Quietly Hostile. You say that's how you describe your public persona. What does being quietly hostile actually look like? What does that mean? It looks like an outer shield of Midwestern politeness and charm. I'm very charming. Under the surface, my blood is always at a high simmer. It's not boiling, but it is... <laughs> it is bubbling a little bit. A little yes. Bit. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's always just like a constant low grade frustration with everything. But like keeping a keeping a nice face on it. Yeah, with a smile. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some have described your work as funny self-help. You call it more of a survival guide. What do you mean by that? I mean, I am a I am in no position to truly help anyone, right? Like I have some tools and tricks that if people want to adopt, it'll get them from point A to point B because that's essentially like what I'm doing. I'm just trying to get to the next thing. I don't have any long-term goals. I don't make any plans. I just am trying to find a way to get to whatever is happening after this. You know what I mean? And so like help... I I don't know if I'm if I'm helpful to people that is incredible and I feel great about it even if it's just to give them a laugh right like I always want to be useful I want someone to 
have a lift in their day because of some joke I made. I'm curious, would you ever consider or have you ever done stand-up comedy? Uh, No, and I wouldn't consider it because this I have a real answer for. Uh, Stand-up comedy, (laughs) it's like the only medium where the audience is encouraged to be rude to the person on stage. And I can't, I can't get heckled. You know what I mean? Like, I will pass away on stage (laughs) if I get heckled. Oh, my God. Just thinking about it, like, I'm going to break out in a cold sweat. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, let's not get you. It's okay. But storytelling, which I have done, like, Chicago has a big, used to, I don't know how big it is now, but um, a live lit community, which is essentially, like, storytelling and there are all these storytelling shows and I performed live in front of a live mm-hmm. audience and I performed yeah, live for yep. years and years but like a storytelling audience is like prepared to cry and uh, like pleasantly surprised when you make them laugh <laughs> stand up audiences are like make me laugh idiot and I don't need that kind of pr- I don't need that kind of pressure So, Sam, there's a chapter in your book about the question people who have chosen not to have children often get, and that's, don't you wish you had a kid? And your response is, do I wish I could sit idly by and witness all the things I hate about myself (laughs) in a person? How do you respond to that question in real life? And does it actually bother you for people to still ask you that? It doesn't bother me because it gives me a chance to um, do a bit. I always love the opportunity to do a bit. (laughs) And that is what I say to people, especially people who know me. I'm like, okay, my body's a wreck. Um, I am mentally unwell. What part of, like... What part of you wishes that I was a person who had a kid? It's so weird how people will ask you something like that's like deeply personal, right? Just reflexively, like, hey, aren't you aren't you sad you didn't have a kid? First of all, what if I am sad? Are you gonna help me pick up these pieces of myself you just shattered on the floor <laughs> for your amusement? No, you're probably not. But also it's just like I have I didn't have a good childhood, and I am a person who was like, oh, I don't ever want to subject anyone to the life I could provide for them, right? Because it wouldn't be great, at least like before now, right? If I had a kid during my childbearing years, uh, that kid would have suffered and my life would have been hard. And I lived that as a kid, so I don't want to do that to another child. So, no, I... Your parents were both quite a bit older when they had Yeah, they were 40 and 50. My mom had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis four or five years before she got pregnant with me. And her OB was like, don't have a baby. And, like, everyone in her life was like, don't have a baby. But she wanted to have a baby because she'd had my sisters when she was really young and was finally in a position. She had a house. She had a husband. She was finally in a position to, like, do it the right way. 
And I that lasted for a few years, and then everything fell apart, and it was like, hey, Mom, I'm here now, but your OB was right. I should be in, like, the shadow realm somewhere, like, floating around, but I... I I don't know how to look a kid in the face and be like, yes, I willingly brought you into this earth or brought you onto this earth, like knowing what I know about myself and about the world. Good luck, (laughs) you know. There's a chapter from your first book, Meaty, um, that you you talk in great detail about your mother. Her name was Grace. um, And you break up your life in two categories before she got really sick And then after, there was something that happened when you were about nine years old that really accelerated her decline. What happened at that age? She was in a car accident. She was not wearing her seatbelt. And she kind of like flew across the front seat and hit her head on the rearview mirror And a blood clot formed in her brain, unbeknownst to her. She didn't go to the hospital. And then one day I was home from school and she was sitting on the side of the bed just like drooling and and like more incoherent than usual. And I, I don't, it took me a minute to, like I thought she was just like gathering herself. You know, I was a little kid. Um, And she didn't seem to be, like, actively in distress. But eventually I went and got the neighbor who was like, oh, let's call an ambulance. And it turned out she had a blood clot in her brain. And when they took it out, her multiple sclerosis came out of remission. Like, in a big way. She went downhill very fast. And you, I mean, the name of that chapter is my mother, my daughter. Mm -hmm. You refer to your mother as your baby Mm -hmm. at that time. And you had to split yourself into two people, this happy, smiley, well-adjusted kid uh, who needed to make friends, who needed to be well-adjusted and do really well in school. And then also your mother's caretaker Mm -hmm. and friend and nurturer at night. And this was of course, very traumatic for you. Yeah. it. I mean, at the time, you know, it's just you got to do what you got to do, right? Like, I just have to do my homework and go to school and I have to help my mom. But then when you look back on it as an adult, I just am like, I mean, this is not a popular thing to say, but I do get like very frustrated because that's a foreseeable problem that my parents never set anything up to deal with, right? Um, there there was no, like, help mom get into assisted living fund. You know what I mean? It was just like, oh, we made all these decisions, then everything fell apart, and now we're ill-equipped to deal with them. Good luck, Samantha. Your mother died when you were 18. Actually, both of your parents died when you were 18, so you never really got to know them outside of that mm-hmm. child-parent relationship. Mm-hmm. In Meaty, you you write that you miss the idea of your mother, but you aren't really sure that you'd actually like her as an adult. What did you mean by that? I mean that I, I don't know either of my parents as people. Like, I know them as 
my parents, but I mean, at least old school black parents in my case, they weren't the type to like, they didn't like tell me their business. You know what I mean? There was no like, Susie at work is really getting on my nerves. You know what I mean? Like we didn't have like conversations about their feelings or their friends or what was happening. And unfortunately it has turned me into an adult who's kind of like that. Like if a kid is around when I'm trying to gossip, I'm like, you better go, you better (laughs) go get the Nintendo brother. I have, I have some rumors to spread. Um, But we never got to the point where we could talk to each other like people, like they were very much like child in a child's place. Kind. I mean, my dad was 50 and he had fought in Korea, right? Like he was just like a hardened old alcoholic. Um, And so it wasn't like they were having heart to hearts with me. Like I don't, I don't know much about them as people. One thing that you do just by virtue of sharing your life is normalizing being bisexual. When did you understand yourself to be bisexual? And did you ever have conflict around it, like having to make a choice? Well, no conflict because, and excuse the callousness of this, but it's real. Uh, Dead parents, you can do whatever you want. Truly, I've done whatever I wanted because it like there's no one who's going to tell me. I, honestly, I didn't have the kind of parents who could be like, oh, you've brought shame to our family. But if they tried it, you know, <laughs> I don't have to deal. I don't have to deal with that. So I can just do whatever. I think early on, I I sort of like knew I had. I would go with whomever expressed interest in me, right? Like, I knew that from an early age that if a woman came up to me and was like, I'm interested, I'd be like, I'm interested back. And same thing with a man. So it wasn't even like, I didn't have to, like, come out or uh, do anything like that. It was just like, oh, I'm dating this person now, and now I'm dating this person. I have gotten... Uh, some pushback from queers who are like, you never write about the women you dated. And I mean, I have a policy of not making fun of women. And honestly, there there's nothing. But you make fun of men. Yes. Yes. I mean, not to turn this into <laughs> misandry today, but come on. Of course, they could take it. Um <laughs> I I also have never had a woman pull the kind of stuff men pull, right? It's like, I guess I could write about that lady I'd uh, calmly watch TV with until it was like, man, this commute to your house takes too long. Let's stop seeing each other. But like that's... They don't give you funny material. No, because yeah. they're like nice and not damaging but like men are like bulls in china shops at least the ones i have dated let me not let me not all men and have like given me like fodder or hurt me in ways that i've spun into comedy samantha irby thank you so much for this conversation thank you for having me tanya this was amazing 
Samantha Irby's new book of humorous essays is called Quietly Hostile. She spoke with Fresh Air's co-host, Tanya Mosley. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shurok, Sam Brugger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs>